0: This podcast is brought to you by the Leafwing Center, helping children and families since 1999. Brought to you by the clinical treatment team at the Leafwing Center. This is the Autism Parent Helper Podcast.
1: Hello listeners, welcome to, to Leafwing Center's very first podcast.
2: My name is Ray Reyes.
3: I'm Mario Ganesian. Manjit Sidhu here.
2: Lloyd Gilbert. I'm John Lubert. Hi everyone, I'm Savan Salikian.
4: And guys, what we want to talk about today is kind of an interesting issue, I think. You know, we've all encountered this uh, uh, quite a few times in our clinical practice, is this idea of um, feeding problems. And, uh, you know, we know um, that when we work with our children um, or our individuals, that oftentimes there's some concern about, you know, this individual does or does not eat this or there would be some area for change in terms of eating um, you know I've seen it in my clinical practice uh, over the years and we're talking about you know quite a quite a few years I'd say maybe 20 30 40 percent of the time so it's pretty pretty prevalent and so why don't we you know spend some time talking about that today
2: sounds like a plan John so um, like you said John it, it, it's about 20 30 40 percent of children experience feeding problems on some level. We know that feeding problems are common amongst typically developing children, but they're even more prevalent amongst children living with autism.
4: So so even like uh, typically developing kids have these issues, right? We're talking about, you know, just... Um, your neurotypical boys and girls have some feeding issues. Is that, is that what we're hearing? That sounds right.
2: Yeah, like you said earlier, uh, we might be dealing with, with picky eating or, or not eating enough or not eating enough of the right things or eating too much of things that we don't want some of the kids to be eating and so on. So they present in many different forms.
4: And am I to understand right, guys, is it like our kids with special needs or our individuals with special needs, there's maybe even a higher prevalence? Are we seeing that?
2: Yeah. In fact, there was a research done in 2009 by Nichols and Brian Waugh showed us that feeding problems affect approximately as high as 40 to 80 percent of children with disabilities, including autism.
4: Wow. 40 to 80 percent. That's a big yeah, number. Yeah, that's, it, can, it
2: can be pretty high.
4: Yeah, I, that's really a significant number there. And those kinds of things, what are we talking about? What are those things?
2: So feeding problem... Is a, is a loose definition as it relates to, to the field of autism. There's a number of definitions out there, but it consists of a variety of factors, some combination of the following. Let's say the inability or refusal to eat certain foods because of a variety of factors. Now, those factors can inf- include skill deficit, food selectivity, challenging behaviors, uh, medical issues, um, lack of effective and consistent caregiver feeding practices, even pica, or the eating or attempting to eat non-food items. So mm-hmm. now, now that you said that, I'm sorry to,
4: to interject, but now that you said that, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. I never really thought about um, a skills deficit when it comes to eating. I guess I, I have no deficits <laughs> <laughs> with respect to eating, but I guess maybe if you look at it, it is a skill. You know, you have to to put something, you have to to cut a food and you have to put it in your mouth, you have to chew it, and then you have to swallow it, right? So there's like three, four different sub-skills that you need to have some fluency with, Mm -hmm. you know?
2: That's true. At the most basic, the most fundamental level, the skill deficits should be considered when we're talking about feeding problems. Like you mentioned, chewing and swallowing. Some children with autism may present difficulties with oral and motor skills, even Handling utensils, forks, knives, spoons, things of that nature. So these deficits can make eating and yeah. feeding more difficult for sure. I agree with that because I mean, we all work with younger children, and
1: more a uh, common thing about children, children living with autism is th- their fine motor skills aren't mm-hmm. as developed. So mm-hmm. if we're talking about using utensils for eating, then you know, they are at a disadvantage there.
4: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And maybe, you know, um, we've spent a lot of time teaching those fine motor skills, Mm -hmm. too, as well. Um, With respect to food selectivity, which is an interesting other, you know, whole other direction, it seems like, you know, um, that's quite a broad definition of things, you know. There's, you know, those of us, like me, I personally, you know, I don't really dig oysters. (laughs) <laughs> you know um, so that I, I, I guess you could say I have some level of food selectivity that's true um, you know and then but but I eat pretty much most everything else um, you know I stay more to our western foods you know here that I was accustomed to growing up in the United States you know when we uh, get into you know things that are not so um, common in our, our uh, U.S. culture I, I tend to be a little bit more hesitant mm-hmm. to approach those kinds of things but I guess, you know, to some degree, we all have some level of food selectivity, but I guess maybe it becomes a problem when it becomes a little extreme.
2: Mm -hmm. Affects nutritional intake, Mm -hmm. limits your diet, cuts into, um, you know, family life, that sort of thing. So yeah, you made a good point, John. All of us probably have some level of food selectivity. It just doesn't affect us to the level where... You know, it's it's harmful uh, nutritionally, and um, you know it affects family lifestyle and that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. We know that food selectivity is is very common in the field of autism. Um, there's one study done by Provost in 2010. He used uh, parent self-report questionnaires and found that 95% of children with autism were reported by parents to have a range of specific food preferences, and this was done using a sample of 23 children living with autism. So interestingly the types of food preference included preference based on food color, food packaging, food texture and certain food temperatures. That's fantastic.
4: That is so interesting. So we're talking about 23 kids so it's not, you know, it's not a massive number of kids but I'm sure this doesn't seem to be inconsistent with maybe what we've experienced clinically Sounds but far off. yeah it doesn't sound too far off but it seems kind of interesting you know um food colors you know okay so you know you can imagine a, um, a kid it was like oh i only eat orange foods or <laughs> i only you know green foods you know well, we would love that i'm sure because green <laughs> foods would be vegetables <laughs> yeah kind of goes into the rigidity too yes it does yeah and it could be part mm-hmm. of that rigidity kind of thing um, food packaging, that's not one that I would have expected.
2: Yeah, so in that particular study, the same food presented in different packages, some of the kids would refuse to eat the same food if it was presented in a different package simply because of the packaging. Packaging, we're talking about like boxes and plastic bags and whatnot, or? Yeah, yeah, plastic bags, wrappers, and, and things of that nature, yeah. just yeah, so so interesting
5: to say, depending on what it's marketed towards or what's on it, it could make mm-hmm. a big factor as well.
2: And you know, packages that begs the question of what specifically they were talking about. <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, packages could could, uh, could work as a condition reinforcer because you already know what's inside and you've kind of associated mm. the, the package with what you're gonna get inside. So when that's changed around, sure. it could have an impact. But but food uh, texture, now that's that was a big one.
4: Yeah. Uh, out yeah. of
2: that out of that sample, 71% of the kids or 17 of them uh, had a range of specific food preference. Just based on food texture alone. And I'm sure we've all seen this in our yeah. practice. Yeah. Some kids just will not eat anything or will prefer not to eat anything mushy or or slimy on the other hand slimy, slimy. Like the oysters, slimy. right? John? Yeah. <laughs> anything wet.
4: Yes. Yeah. That was a, that didn't surprise me at all. That's kinda when we were talking about selectivity, that's kind of what I immediately my brain went to. Is textures and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I think in my experience, that's what I see most often with our kids. Is they like, oh, I don't like slimy things or creamy things or what have you. And in fact, I've even talked to some adults that are li- like that. You know, just in, in, in the coffee shop. You know, oh yeah, oh no, that's kind of kind of slimy and I gross mean, like mayonnaise.
1: People well,
3: hate mayonnaise.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The same way. I can't, yeah. I
3: can't eat yogurt.
4: Yogurt is... Because it's it's lumpy. It's a texture. Okay, yeah. Yeah.
5: You ever mentioned oysters? I'm the same way with octopus or anything along those lines. Yes,
4: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, you know that's something that even used, touching it just bothers me it used to when I, I used to really be resistant to it when I was a kid like uh, octopus and calamari and that kind of stuff as I've grown older I've become more open to it now so now I'll eat it without too much problem my kids are still really like whoa what are you eating yet? <laughs> you <got to laughs> <like desensitize, laughs> yeah I guess I got
5: desensitized over time yeah now that also has another dual effect to it also because if you've had it raw it's a lot cheer than the outside of it which is slimy.
4: yeah. What is, this, what is this food temperatures thing? That's another surprise to me in there. I'm guessing hot versus cold. Yeah. You know? yeah. You know,
1: yeah. I mean, I remember it's not as common. I, I can only remember one child mm-hmm. that I worked years ago that had a preference for piping hot food. Really? Yes. So the food is always placed in the microwave, but out of all the clients I've worked with, that's the only one I can remember. I,
3: I've had one.
5: You now had it comes one. to my mm. mind. Yeah. It really? had to be super hot. Mm-hmm
3: and
5: that's how mostly hot a- not a- cold right had yeah the hot effect i've always had cold. cold cold
2: there could be a sensory issue going on there too right because Definitely. you know children with autism there are sensory impairments and sensory sensitivities so you know the way one child living with autism experiences cold or hot or soft or hard mm-hmm. could be totally different from another individual so that may play a role as well mm-hmm. with the with the temperature factor
4: yeah, I just—it's just so interesting. Ninety-five percent of the kids with ASD manifested or showed some form of food, you know, um, issue—some issue with eating That so. Okay. Yeah, and that study, uh-huh. it, yeah. pretty darn prevalent.
2: Yeah. Another interesting thing about the uh, food textures we spoke about—maybe um, you guys have had the same experience—but in my practice, um, and and in the reading that I've done, you know, there's been situations where uh, a child will will not eat let's say an apple or a strawberry when presented in, in sliced form or whole form but when the texture or form is modified let's say into a juice or a smoothie something of that nature mm-hmm. they may be more willing to to try the same food so that's just something you know for us to keep in mind when we mm-hmm. play around with textures and yeah. forms gives us some more options to work with yeah um so that's you know something that might be helpful
5: yeah, to be really yeah. good for parents.
2: Yeah. Because
5: yeah. I think a lot of times we all kind of get in that fixed mentality it needs to be this way or mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. But changing things up a little bit would be a good thing for them to look at as well.
4: Yeah. I think even, you know, we even as neurotypical grown-ups may do that kind of stuff as well, you know, where, you know, those juice bars, Jamba Juice and Robex and <clears throat> all those places, it become quite popular because, you know, a lot of us, it's a good way to get our bit our fruits and vegetables, you know, and so I've heard people actually say that they, you know, prefer to drink their fruit, their vegetables rather than to eat them. Eat them. Yeah. yeah. Because they yeah. don't it's have to do fashion. the chewing
3: and the chewing
1: and the tasting, the, the, and yeah. the tasting. Yes, and maybe. it stays in your mouth
3: longer. Yeah.
4: Maybe it just goes right down your throat, gets yeah. in your tummy and yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Really interesting.
2: Challenging behaviors, that, that plays a role with, uh, with feeding problems, it, it, it definitely, you know, as parents out there know, makes mealtime a lot more difficult. You know, that those behaviors might include you know, throwing or, or ear-eye pressuring, uh, resisting to sit at the table, that sort of thing. Do you oh, know? Tantrums. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: It seems to me, and I mean, not to not to do a functional assessment without doing a functional assessment, but <laughs> it seems to me a little bit like there's just a lot of behaviors, you know, that were are sort of escape avoidance behaviors. You know, the tantrum, the throwing the food away, the, uh, you know, escaping the um, eating location, the table or the chair, whatever it is. Um, so, it's a lot of behaviors we see, you know, serving the function of escape, which is interesting as well. Yeah, these behaviors
3: is just another way of saying, I don't want it. In
4: exactly. Ways, yeah. Exactly, yeah.
2: Those sensory issues, yeah, like we, we kind of touched on that earlier, too. I mean, that's something that uh, we should be aware of because, you know, impairments in sensory processing are common in children living with autism. So mm-hmm. that may affect their eating habits. Uh, you know, a child living with autism, uh, biting into something crunchy like an apple <laughs> or a chip, um, it could be aversive, you know, a lot of pressure on the teeth, the jaw. Yeah. So it might be helpful to consider those sensory issues. And those are things
4: like, you know, obviously the taste of the food,
2: mm-hmm. but
4: also the smell of it too, you know, what it smells like. And, you know, we, some foods have s- stronger smells than others, you know. And we've heard, you know, we're in offices where there's shared kitchens, you know, oh, you know, the people in this office cook this food and it's really garlicky. And the people in this <laughs> office cook this food and it's really this or that or what have you. And that those smells can even affect us. We're, we're pretty well aware of that. You know, that, that's really interesting to me.
2: Yeah, definitely. And it's always good to uh, you know keep in mind medical and, and gastrointestinal issues. Those are some other factors associated with feeding problems. Things like acid reflux or difficulty with bowel movements. You know these are factors associated with uh, with feeding problems, and, and it could affect the nutritional intake of children living with autism. So, you know identification of these at an early age is likely to benefit children's nutritional <laughs> and overall health in the long run.
4: Yeah, that's real common sense to me. You know, if you don't, we know, we don't, when we're sick, when we have the flu, we don't, sometimes we don't want to eat. Food is not uh, appetizing to us. And so if our kids or our individuals on the spectrum are in some sort of, you know, distress in terms of their GI tract or what have you, it makes sense to me. Seems real common sense that they wouldn't be that interested in eating.
2: Totally. Some uh, children living with autism exhibit pica behaviors and what we mean by pica is that eating or attempting to eat non-food substances so that's another one of the factors that's been recognized amongst feeding problems and clinically i've seen that you know um
4: i don't know put a percentage on all the individuals it's not low but i guess maybe it stands out to me when i see it when i come across it um, you know, I, I might have seen it 5% of the kids or the individuals that I work with. And oftentimes, too, I usually see it in adults more so than kids. And I've seen things from, like, eating rocks, um, you know, picking up a rock off the ground and eating it, to eating cigarette butts, you know, so um, or cigarette filters and, uh, leafs and, uh, yeah, all kinds of things like that. And I know, um, a lot of times there's been a little bit of a medical theory on this, that, that pica is in fact, um, maybe the, the body's internal way of getting minerals and vitamins that it's deficient in, um, without the person being aware of it. So it's kind of like a subconscious way Mm. of, you know I'm deficient in magnesium. You know, so we're gonna go find something that gives me magnesium. So I'm gonna go eat dirt. You know that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that was a, a hypothesis people had. And so a lot of times what we do when we get that is, first thing we do is refer to a pediatrician or a physician, or somebody to to do a, an assessment in terms of the the individual's you know their their overall nutritional. Status whether they're missing anything mineral or vitamin wise. So uh, it was pretty interesting to me when we've worked with people with PICA in the past.
2: That, that is good practice, John. Thanks for sharing that. And the research also shows that there's usually a relationship between PICA aggressive behavior and gastrointestinal problems, which is not surprising because if we're, you know, attempting to eat or eating non food items then gastrointestinal problems is uh, usually a, uh, something that's expected after that so yeah whenever we're considering feeding problems in children with autism pica should be included whenever relevant like you said John it probably doesn't affect uh, a a huge portion of the population but some individuals do uh, exhibit pica behaviors Mm -hmm.
4: absolutely what um, what do you guys think about you know kind of where we are in uh, you know the new millennium and, and the, what we'll just kind of have this discussion is the western world and our practices and our daily lives now where, you know, what meal time is for us, you know um, when we have school age kids, you know, it's like, okay, let's eat fast so we can get to school so we're trying to eat, you know, whatever it is you know, lunch is usually consumed at school by the, sort of a school responsibility oftentimes, or sometimes we'll send our children to school with lunches But then dinner kind of circles back around to the family. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times our families are juggling things. There's babies involved, and there's teenagers involved, and we've got to figure out how to make a meal time Mm -hmm. or, or feed a few mouths. And so what I kind of am wondering is, is our more traditional meal time, you know, in quotes, is that something more of the past or is that um, is that something a present hmm. construct or That's a
2: really good question, John. In my experience, I've found that meal time and meals and, and, and eating habits vary widely from individual to individual and, and family to family based yeah. on their, their lifestyles, their schedules, work, school, you know. What After their school uh, activities, different is. ages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do we want to sit down? Do we all want to eat together? Or do we just want to eat and you know move on to the next thing? So, so definitely And where to eat? Where to have there, dinner? In front of the TV. TV. Yeah. 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 At the dinner table with everyone there, siblings, yeah. parents. So, lots of variability. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it's really
4: it's a it's a complex issue. Are there are there any do we are we aware of any like assessments that we can um, that can kind of help us take a look at this from a more standardized practice?
1: Yes, I mean, uh, uh, we want an assessment. Uh, One thing in our field is that we really want to operationally define, you know, Mm -hmm. like, so we're all sure what exactly we're looking at. Mm -hmm. And one way to do that is to use some kind of an assessment. Um, There are assessments out there. Uh, There's this children's eating behavior inventory, Screening tool for feeding problems or mm-hmm. STEP and the Behavioral Pediatric Feeding Assessment Scale mm-hmm. or BPFAS, um, but John, these were not really developed for children living with autism. Mm. Um, um, and again, you know, we want to make sure that we are using some kind of a tool there that's, that is specific to the population we're working with. But it's not there at least until the the Bambi is. Mm-hmm. Uh, stands for is a Brief Autism Mealtime Behaviors Inventory. Mm-hmm. It was uh, developed by Lukens and Linscheid back in 2008. Okay. And in a nutshell, it is the first standardized questionnaire that um, we can use with families out there with uh, children mm-hmm. living with autism. Um, it's a pretty straightforward... Um, questionnaire much like the other questionnaires that we Mm -hmm. have used and direct measurement uh, measurement that we have used with our clients Mm -hmm. families, so it's not difficult at all and from my understanding they they have grouped the questionnaire into three Mm
6: -hmm.
1: Uh, like the first group taps into something like uh, what variety of food a child may or may not be into Okay. ask about their willingness to try new items so it speaks a little bit to that idea of selectivity exactly okay. like what Sivan had gone over earlier mm-hmm. it asked something about preparation of food textures and type uh, second group is about food refusals mm-hmm. basically it looks into the behavioral aspects of things that we observe from mm-hmm. a child like tantrums crying closing mm-hmm. mouths and all that and the third feature is what really separates the Bambi from other uh, assessments Mm -hmm. because it does tap into autistic or autism specific behaviors such as inattention Mm -hmm. self-injurious behaviors and repetitive behaviors to name a few And, um, and again like I said it's a very straightforward questionnaire you rate a question between one and five one I believe is never or rarely and a five is at least every meal, and you answer this question for all 18 questions. Okay,
4: so it's not too long.
1: It's not too long, and again, from what I've read, uh, this tally, a score is, is figured out in the end.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: From a behavioral perspective, and us here in, in this field, it's best to do this like in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So you have a baseline, mm-hmm. uh, how, tips, how right. bad the behavior is in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And we have the intervention and run its scores, and a few weeks later or a few months, we run the assessment again and mm-hmm. see how the scores may have changed over time. Mm. Obviously, we want the score to be lower mm-hmm. than baseline, which will suggest that the intervention we've used is somewhat working. Mm-hmm.
2: That's pretty cool, Ray. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. It's great that the Bambi's out there. And it could be used by parents, practitioners. It's it's effective. It's it's straightforward. Um, it could be filled out by parents and, and anyone that's really familiar with uh, with the child's um, eating habits, really. Mm-hmm. So that's a really cool tool that now, can be used.
4: Now I've never had the chance of using the Bambi, but um, uh, you know, knowing what I know a little bit about assessment um, and um, specifically what I'm talking about, we when we administer the questions about behavioral function or the motivation assessment Mm -hmm. scale a lot of the one of the critical factors in there is do the does the respondent understand the question so that when they answer it they give you a good answer that you can then take that information Mm -hmm. and use it um you know i'm sure none of us have had the chance to use the bambi but i'm wondering if you know i'm going to try to use it now I'm wondering if the, you know, if it's pretty user friendly, you know, if it gives us good information pretty easily.
2: Oh, that's a really good point, John. Yeah, we want the answers. We want the questions and the answers to produce valid results. And uh, like you said, Ray, those questions are pretty standardized. They're pretty straightforward. And um, yeah, so with that, uh, the Bambi has a pretty good amount of validity overall. So we have,
4: we have a, uh, a, a tool to assess mm-hmm. now, okay? We have something, you know, which is great, you know, because with what we want to do, like you said, Ray, uh, we want to assess and then, you know, look for progress over time. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have a, an intervention? Is there any sort of intervention that we're aware of?
3: We do. Um, we found something called EAT-UP. And let's just start with what EAT-UP stands for. Mm. It's Easing Anxiety Together with Understanding and Perseverance. Um, basically, it's just an intervention that parents can use at meal times. It uses evidence-based practices and training of parents as the primary interventionists because they're the ones that are going mm-hmm. to be there for the mealtime. So it's important that they learn the skills and the interventions that they can apply.
4: So really consistent with our philosophy in applied behavior analysis. Right. Yeah. so that's 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 a nice um, sort of consistency with what we do already.
3: Right. Um, So for Eat Up, it was applied into a research article that we found, um, published in November 2016 by Cosby and Muldoon. Uh, I'll tell you the name of the article. It's uh, Eat Up, Family-Centered Feeding Intervention to Promote Food Acceptance and Decrease Challenging Behaviors, a Single-Case Experimental Design Replicated Across Three Families of Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder. Uh, it was a really interesting article. Like I just said, it was uh, focused on three different individual families. And um, it was to promote food acceptance and decrease challenging behaviors that occurred at mealtime. And it was effective. These interventions that we'll hopefully go through were all effective in, in uh,
6: yeah.
4: well, the goals there. It's great, too, because it was in 2016, so it's a reasonably recent, recent study, Yeah, which is really great. I don't know if we recall, I don't have any notes here about where it was published. We can obviously try to look that up and put it in some show notes or something like that or on the website um, for anybody who wanted to look that up.
0: Yeah, and uh, the training procedures that they used, uh, they were two phases to the training components. The intervention coaching phase where the parent was trained to implement the intervention, with coaching, and then parents were given feedback after the training session was over, mm. so that they know um, what are some of the things that they can work on mm-hmm. um, and going forward. And then there was also a second component, which was, and um, also keep in mind, once the parent was able to do 90% of the intervention strategies, over three consecutive sessions, uh, they would go into a phase two.
4: So more so if I understand right, the coaching phase, the goal was for the experts to teach the parents to be able to implement the intervention at 90% accuracy.
0: Absolutely. And they
4: had to do that over three different feeding sessions before they moved on to phase two?
0: Exactly. Cool. And uh, once they got to phase two, Uh, which was the intervention independent phase, like I mentioned, during that phase, the coaching was eliminated.
6: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, But the um, after-session feedback continued because, of course, the parent um, should be aware of what are some things that could continue um, to work on and improve. And then in phase two, uh, if the child demonstrated 85% of the food acceptance based on each child's um, individual goal, uh, that was... uh, that was completed
4: Ah, so phase two continued on with the parents implementing the intervention all by themselves for whatever period of time it took for them to achieve 85 percent of the goals
0: that they had set up
4: at the beginning absolutely and those goals are things like uh, increasing the number of vegetables eaten or decreasing uh, challenging behaviors. Exactly. Okay. For
0: example, there was Blake. There was three um, three participants. For Blake's goal, the uh, family goal was to increase participation in mealtime, increase vegetables uh, in their diet, and then of course they wanted to decrease the challenging behaviors, okay. which this um, participant exhibited, like leaving the table, banging their head, uh, um, and uh, while when they were trying to uh, communicate refusal.
4: So again, the goals were to increase participation in family meal times. So I guess if we were to read between the lines here, um, this particular participant, the family had a meal time, and uh, this particular individual would maybe not participate in that. They might eat in the, on the sofa, the TV, or outside of those times. Or
3: not stay at the, at the table. table for a
0: cons-
4: yes.
3: consistent period of time.
4: Got it. They couldn't
0: keep them at the table for a consistent uh, amount of time. Got time.
4: it. And then I see incorporate vegetables into the diet. And that's pretty much all parents' sort of goals, <laughs> right? Yeah.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I
4: could see that being pretty consistent. And then I think what we're seeing a lot of is the decrease the challenging behaviors. And those were leaving the table, um, and then some self-injurious beha- uh, behavior, banging head. With hands um, to communicate, like I don't want to eat this, you know, so I'm going to hit my head. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Interesting.
3: The other two participants had similar goals as well, um, but their their eating style was a little bit different. Where these other two kids would eat um, in the living room in front of the TV, or one of them would eat in the car, to and from you know therapy sessions or after school activities and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Parental goals were the same, basically to increase food acceptance, have their child eat healthier foods, and like we said, decrease all the challenging behaviors <laughs> mm-hmm. that make these um, meal times difficult for parents, causing a lot of frustration and anxiety. And then you know you just kind of end up saying, okay, eat whatever because I can't deal with this. Yeah. So to work through that.
2: I think it's really cool how this uh, particular study, the Eat Up approach, focuses on parents and caregivers as trainers or, yes. or implementers of, a, of an intervention. Because we know from our experiences and the research that young children with autism typically rely on their parents exactly. and caregivers to prepare and provide their food. You know, as adults, maybe not so much for us, but as a you know young child yeah. and especially young child living with autism, they really do rely on the caregivers and parents to do that.
4: And one particular thing that struck me about this was one of the second participant here had, um, what would be the way to say this, eating behavior that was more atypical or less typical of what we would expect. So specifically what I'm talking about is it was described in the article that this particular participant would chew the food without swallowing it spit the uh, chewed food into the participant's palm shape that food into a ball and then would put it back in their mouth uh, and repeat that multiple times before swallowing it so that was a little bit more atypical kind of eating behavior Um, and then of course something that you know that if this was a school-aged kid and they were doing this at school among peers would be something that probably um, his or her peers would mm-hmm. would maybe notice and or perhaps react Think to
3: stand out. Yeah. yeah,
4: yeah. So that was interesting to me. And then the third boy, um, the third participant, um, um, and, you know, again, our eating vegetables and fruits that sort of um, always present um, goal and desire by parents is to have those um, to have our kids eat more of that stuff. Um, But also had sort of that textural thing. They disliked wet foods like apple slices, which was interesting as well. Exactly.
3: And he preferred eating crunchy and sweet foods.
4: Mmm, sweets. Oh, boy. Yeah, Yeah, those never Mm -hmm. go away.
3: So he, he was eating a lot of dry cereal and cookies. Got it. And chips.
4: So with respect to the goals, did the parents choose those? Or did the researchers? Or do we know that? All these
3: goals are individualized to fit each family and their daily routine. So yes, it was the parents, they worked with their team and they um, worked on goals that were important to them.
4: Okay. All right. And so they they went about pursuing those goals by some intervention plan, right? There was a... uh, Correct. Like some sort of component intervention plan, multi-step?
0: Yeah, they had um, four strategies, so four different um, areas. So there was the food characteristics, which uh, includes uh, increasing variety of foods presented uh, to the child. So increasing how often less preferred foods um, are presented. And they did this by offering foods from three different groups. Um, they also selected foods that the child is likely to learn to eat, such as the texture. We've talked about that, You know mm-hmm. the color, the shape. We want to definitely make uh, the uh, strategy, the, the goals, more successful. So we want to pick foods that are going to be more desirable. Mm-hmm. And they presented both the preferred and the less preferred foods at each meal time.
4: Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: and then they, the second strategy was the, it's called dietic communication. This pretty much promotes the conversation, the communication between the parent and the child this approach is to give the child a voice so that the child can um, you know uh, communicate their their wants and needs i want to eat you know i don't want to eat that food i do want to eat that food and with mm-hmm. visual aids For example, showing both a carrot, if you're trying to have the child eat the carrot, and the cookie, and say, first eat your carrot, and then you can have your cookie.
4: Do you you recall, Mari, did the article say anything, and you probably don't, but did the article say anything to the effect of, where I'm going with this, I'm being devil's advocate a little bit, and I'm sure (laughs) our parents out there are thinking about this as well, is that, um, you know, if we're training functional communication training, and we're teaching our kids to say, no thanks, I don't want that. And they're saying, no thanks, I don't want that, to the vegetables and fruits. Did they say it all in the article about how they responded to that? Did they ultimately say, well, okay, that's great. You're doing a great job telling me you don't want that. But no. <laughs> this spinach is great for you. <laughs>
0: I guess, of course, it, um, they didn't mention anything specifically. But, okay. of, yeah. course, of course, you want to have a variety of foods, maybe Mm -hmm. something like, we talked about less desirable to more desirable, maybe something that's a more of a secondary food that's Mm -hmm. gonna be similar to what they're trying to have the child eat Mm -hmm. uh, so that they'll be more successful in having them consume the food. So that's why I think the texture, the color, things like that are a little Mm -hmm. bit more important. I think if they, you know, the parent knows the child uh, the best, so they know what are some favorite things that they like, let's try to figure out some foods that are gonna be close. To what he likes and then let's go from there
1: that was a good question John because uh it's true I mean because they are teaching two things uh, tolerance for food and a good way a uh, uh, replacement behavior to avoid a food they, mm-hmm. they may not want
6: mm-hmm.
1: I'm guessing if you think about this and we probably apply this in our practice by just offering the child something obvious that they will not eat like onion Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, they will never eat onions. So yeah. then, that's when they probably reinforce, "I don't want that." Okay, yeah. but they did give a, a secondary favorite food or mm-hmm. something. Then. That's
4: interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't so,
1: used onion in your practice, John? Um, <laughs> uh, I,
4: I've done more of. I've used more of like if then. So you can you know, um, using premac principle, you can get this contingent on this mm-hmm. you know if you want this here's the extreme example of that if you want this ice cream then have a bite of this you know broccoli that's usually what I uh, u- utilize where I where I was thinking about this is if you know and this is the thing about teaching a lot of times it, it, it's both a, the wonderful um, thing but it's also there's the downside to it is if we teach um, functional communication training advocacy and empowerment, and we mm-hmm. teach our kids to say, you know, I don't want to eat that. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Then we ultimately have to kind of respect that. It's like, okay. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> you don't want that salad? All right. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, you're telling me just the way you should. You're not, mm-hmm. no no challenging behaviors. We kind of have to roll with that sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so it's a delicate balance, you know? It is. Yeah. It is. And not
1: just for feeding, it's for in general. Yes. You know, like, as we words, to ask for something. Can I have uh, my iPad? If you say please, you will. Yeah. Can yeah. I have an iPad, please? No, you can't. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yes. So I guess
0: in that snare, of course, they want to continue to introduce different foods so that. I guess. You yeah. know, yeah. to try to get. Because yeah. the goal is to have them consume. Yeah. So. Um,
4: yeah. And they talked a little bit about if then, too, which we use a lot, mm-hmm. our pre principle, you know, reinforcing a lesser probable behavior with a higher probable behavior you know that's great fundamental behavior analysis and yeah
2: always a solid go-to intervention and i've noticed that sometimes it even helps having a visual reminder of the the reinforcer like <clears throat> like first we have to eat our carrots and broccoli and then showing a visual of what's to come after instead of just saying it that way it's more uh, tangible more immediate kind of within reach, maybe not within reach, but just, you know, within uh, eye shots so that way.
3: They know what they're yes, working
2: exactly. towards. They know exactly what they're working they have, towards. There's that constant there.
3: reminder, it's right yeah. there.
0: I yeah,
2: increase the motivation out. a little bit. Yeah. They
0: also used a technique called visual food acceptance hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So it was a strategy you need to eat up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically systematic desensitization mm-hmm. of eating non-preferred foods. Okay. For example, if the goal is to eat a carrot, the, strat- uh, the starting point for the child would be to touch the carrot, and then the next, to tap the carrot to the lips, and then taking a bite of the carrot. And then uh, each as each step was successful, an arrow was moved up as a visual reminder mm-hmm. of that target behavior. And then the reinforcer was given.
4: Okay, interesting. There's a great deal of uh, um, uh, um, systematic cognitive behavior therapy and mm-hmm. systematic desensitization, um, using sy- uh, systematic desensitization to treat everything from phobias to mm-hmm. you know things that we refuse. So that makes sense that that's something, uh, one of the components that they put in there. Mm-hmm.
3: Another strategy that uh, the article mentions is the physical environment of mealtimes. So really, basically, this is how mealtime should look, you know, each and every day. Uh, They talk about eating at a specific table. So having a designated, you know, um, area where dinner or lunch is going to be eaten. Mm. Um, Staying with your child. So, you know, don't just uh, set a plate out and, and walk away and you know leave it to them to finish Mm -hmm. but be there with them Mm -hmm. Um, if the child has siblings or you know uh, you even as an adult you want to sit there and eat with your child so you can be role models
6: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, you also want to remove any distractions so you know turning off the TV having no toys in the room Mm -hmm. um, those kind of things You want to also increase the expectation of the time at the table. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we mentioned earlier some kids, you know, uh, I think it was one of the participants that wouldn't stay at the table long enough to finish meals. So, Mm -hmm. therefore, family meal times become difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, So, basically, with this here, you want to teach them to learn to stay at the table, and you want to increase the time periodically. Day one would look... um, you know, you're going to try to have them stay at the table successfully for five minutes. So, and then the next time, increase it.
4: So just to just to, to revisit something that you mentioned, eating at a specific table. So they're actually um, implementing or Im- not want to say imposing. That's kind of the wrong word. But they're prescribing some structure to yes. the environment. Just a, just a quick survey. There's two, four, six of us here. <laughs> Of the six of us, how many of us have a dining table?
3: I do. Yes. Okay. I
4: do. Okay. So all six of us have a dining table. Okay. Do (laughs) all six of us eat our meals at the dining table? All of our meals?
2: Mm, No. Not all. I'd say most of us. I do. I do. you eat all your meals?
4: Okay. All right. The majority. Maybe not lunch. Yeah. But that's
3: if I'm at home, maybe. But I've got kids, so we eat breakfast together at Mm -hmm. the table and we definitely eat dinner at our dinner table
4: got it together so you have a pretty structured meal time yes. system we, um, we, we, eat toge- we do we <laughs> eat together
3: breakfast and dinner
4: okay because that, that was my next question and then if we eat at the dining table how many of us eat together at the same time we at least with the, what we try and do is this is eat together okay and then we have that so that's you, um, us, we, you know, cause uh, we have school age kids, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, uh, you know, the adults versus the kids, the adults have slightly different meal times as the kids. So we kind of, on a daily basis, we probably don't eat our meals together. Mm-hmm. Maybe on weekends when there's not that school structure and all that is yeah. more when we do it. The majority of us, are we like, does that sound like the majority of us? Or...
0: I have infants so they have a little bit of a different yeah. eating schedule than totally. we do. Yeah. But I try to as far as dinner time, uh, try to wait so that I'm having dinner with my husband.
4: Okay. Yeah, so you guys can
5: have that meal. It's
1: time. it's for, for my family it's rather hard. I mean it's very inconsistent. Like what yeah. John said, between Monday and Friday it's like whenever, wherever, whomever, you know. But can... on the weekend that's when you Want some structured meal time, yeah. But I can understand how difficult this may be for you know participants, families out there who really want to address. And then I think this is probably the hardest part. But mm-hmm. the intervention, because we have to change the family's perspective too on how they have their meal times. Yeah. And that's a lot of behavioral change. Schedules involved. Schedules, involves, yeah. And,
4: yes, yeah. And we're so busy nowadays. They also prescribe staying with the child, which I thought was kind of interesting in the sense that, you know, a lot of us will, and like I'm, I'm guilty of this, <laughs> Well, okay, here's your lunch or here's your dinner, and then I'll go and do something that I need to do since especially since I'm <laughs> not always eating at the same time. So um, I, I, I probably have a, a, one I probably eat about 40 or 50% of my meals with, or we all eat them together or I stay with them. So it's not that often, which is, you know, kind of interesting. That would be a little bit hard for our family to do Mm -hmm. or it'd be an adjustment for our family to do. It is. is. And
3: I think for me, the reason that we eat together, (laughs) my daughter was a picky eater Mm -hmm. as a baby, as an you know, a child. Mm -hmm. Um, And I used to have to sit with her at the table Mm -hmm. to make sure she was eating. Mm -hmm. Um, She was one of those kids who, you know, took an hour to eat a Mm -hmm. small little meal so i it would constant reminders okay let's eat you gotta Mm -hmm. take a bite take your next bite so it just kind of became a habit and Mm -hmm. fell into it like that where now we're all at the table together Mm -hmm. so it works out quite
4: that's really cool yeah it works out for you guys
2: and you know it's interesting because some of the approaches that the eat up study is advocating like um eating at a specific table designating a specific place for the behavior to occur it reminds me of of some of bf skinner's teachings and mm-hmm. if i remember correctly he was an advocate of establishing a particular setting for a specific behavior to occur or mm-hmm. to be evoked then everything in that environment over time becomes a cue or habit. or an sd or yeah mm-hmm. a habit and then and then it, it strengthens over time, and you know we do this as adults. You know, yeah. during other times of the day too, besides meal time. You know, getting work done at the office. You know, getting exercise done at the gym. Mm-hmm. So it's like each of these environments almost kind of evoke the behavior that uh, is desirable. So yeah, that was interesting. To
4: Cultivating into. stimulus control. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting as well. Um, and then, of course, you know the the other more common sense things. You know, remove distraction from the environment. You know, if you have a TV or an iPad or, you know, some some virtual reality game, you know, it becomes <laughs> oh, a little yeah. <laughs> a little difficult to probably get much focus on your eating. Um, and then, what about this? Increase your expectations for time at the table. Uh, was that basically a sort of a statement saying, you know, okay. Um, you know, mealtime used to take you you, you, you child used to take five or ten minutes to eat, but now we're going to slow it down and take twenty minutes to eat. You know, and we're going to eat all of the food on our plate. Was that? Do we? Do you guys recall at all? Was that essentially what they were speaking there?
3: I think this was more. Um, there was a participant who wouldn't stay at the table. Mm. Um, okay. That was a way of, of his food refusal. Got it. You know. Okay. Um, so this was working up. longer period of time at the table so he could sit and eat
4: a shaping procedure procedure, okay got it that makes sense all right yeah Um, okay that's great
3: the article also mentions the last strategy was that social environment so um, this was intended to support the positive parent-child interactions you know to avoid power struggles and to be able to communicate effectively Mm Basically, they tell you, you know, maintaining a positive tone, you need to be calm, nobody needs to be yelling or be angry, Mm -hmm. Um, although, you know, that is pretty likely to happen when (laughs) when your child is, you know,
6: tantruming,
3: exhibiting a lot of challenging behaviors. Um, They mention using positive reinforcement, Mm -hmm. you know, if, you know, your child did take a bite of the carrot or the broccoli, you want to let them know that they did a good job. You know, good job for taking a bite of that carrot. Uh, Encouraging, exploring less preferred foods. So if you've got something on your plate or on their plate and, um, you know, they happen to take a stab at it, you know, good for you, good job, you know, you took a bite of that. Let them know, you know, that you saw that and you're happy. Um, Following through with the expectations that you've set. So if you're going to tell your child you're going to eat three bites of that vegetable, then you want to make sure that you kind of follow through with that
2: um and i then, think that's actually a, a pretty important point manji because um we want to be aware of following through with expectations and and also not inadvertently reinforce escape behaviors so mm-hmm. let's say exactly. we really want our kiddo to um, you know eat a b and c foods but they engage in some behaviors some challenging behaviors and then we say all right, whatever, like go take a break or, okay, here's a yeah. sweet item instead, then whether we realize it or not, we're And that's reinforcing learned those. behavior again. They've yeah. learned,
3: they can do that and be able to get away with stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you definitely want to follow through with what you've said.
6: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Um, they also mentioned focusing or uh, staying focused on the goal of food consumption. Mm-hmm. So this kind of ties in with Mar- what Mari was talking about earlier with the visual hierarchy. Um, you know, each child will have a different goal. They'll move up the hierarchy as they're successful within each step. And this can be, uh, within or across Mm mealtimes, you might not get them to be able to eat the broccoli or the carrot, the very first mealtime that you're trying this, Mm -hmm. it might take, you know, a couple of days or even weeks Mm -hmm. before you can get them to be successful. But, um, so that's different for each child. And you wanna set that up that way.
4: And I don't recall, was this where we were talking about like our systematic desensitization yes. process here? Okay. Yes. So like for 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 discussion's sake, you know, like where you're saying it could take multiple sessions, multiple feeding times, day one might be like touching the carrot
3: exactly mm-hmm.
4: okay and then day two might be touching the carrot to your lips or something you know in between Along those yes. lines yeah. got it and so, you might
3: have done that several times to get to the second step
4: got it and just being aware of where you are in that process exactly. okay that makes sometimes sense.
3: they can't even tolerate having that on their plate right so even that could be you know, just, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have to eat it, yeah. but they have to be able to tolerate it being on the plate.
4: Yes. So yeah. it's
3: different for each child.
4: We've seen that, I've seen that clinically where even the sight of a food will mm-hmm. evoke um, mm-hmm. tantrum yeah. behavior and escape behavior. And big tantrums, 20, 30, 40, you know, hour long tantrums, just the sight of, you know, some carrot or peas or something like that.
3: Right. The last strategy that was mentioned in the article was to use token-based systems. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we're all familiar with that. Um, you know, if your child eats his vegetables, he'll get a sticker, and at the end of the week, you know, if he's had a good week with eating vegetables, um, and he's earned, you know, five stickers, might get a trip to the arcade.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, did, or something along those lines. Did
4: the article um, talk about, is the token system one that's built into the intervention? Do they have, like, a you know, you use these tokens, and this is your token board, and et cetera, et cetera, and this is what you exchange your tokens for, or or do they have you kind of develop your own token system in your own household? Like, you know, one household may have, you know, one set of tokens, and then another household may have another.
3: It was individualized for individual. each family, each participant, right? Because okay. out of all the three participants, maybe only one was interested, you know, going to the arcade or it might be a different reward for each, for each child. Kid.
6: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um,
3: and it could be, you know, for one, it might be uh, to be able to eat all of your vegetables. Mm-hmm. When you get a token. Or for another, it might just, like we said earlier, to just tolerate the vegetable being on the plate might earn a token.
4: Got it. Okay.
3: So it's individualized for each participant.
4: So there's some skill and some fluency with um, setting up and administering a token system is kind of necessary here. You know, it would be yeah. helpful. So it almost might, you know, it might be good to have these these coaches with you, you know, it's good that the coaches start you off on that so they can give you those basic fundamentals a little bit before the parents I'm talking about yeah. get the basic fundamentals of how to use a token system, how to set up before they really jump too far into it. Interesting. Again, more, more sound behavior analysis mm-hmm. there.
3: So these were all the interventions that were mentioned in the article. Um, they really worked with the uh, three families that were involved. Um, all three children demonstrated an increase in their food acceptance and a decrease in challenging behaviors during mealtime. Mm. And the parents also reported that they had fewer feelings of frustration and anxiety that related to mealtimes after the intervention was over.
6: Mm.
0: So that absolutely makes sense, having a parent actively involved, increased their willingness to be involved and continue to... Um, you know, with these strategies. uh, And having the strategies implemented at the family home versus the clinical setting decreased the need for generalization from clinic to home because it was already occurring in a natural setting, which is ideal, that's what we want, right? And having the parents implement these strategies also decreased the need for transferring these skills from across different people because the parent already started. The parent is the one that's involved at middle time um, and they're the ones, um, uh, learned how to implement these skills. So mm-hmm. that's was, amazing.
4: So one of the things, another thing that I thought was really interesting was sort of the social validity component of this, and mm-hmm. uh, where the parents reported that they had, uh, fewer feelings of frustration and anxiety regarding mealtime and, um, you know, feeding. Um, and I, it started to me to think, and I don't recall from the article whether there was, um, they formally assessed anxiety and frustration, or whether those were more anecdotal comments. Um, I can't recall that um, from the article. I'm going to assume they were probably. I think they did. They use
1: another uh, measure there to assess something along the lines of that. Frustration, anxiety, that? or
4: something like that.
3: I think there was, but there, I'm not there, sure there, what there it
1: was. There was, um, yeah. I believe. Um, my memory serves me
2: correctly there was the, some it was lower of...
1: towards the end
2: mm. it was a self-report yes yeah. it it yeah. 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 Awesome. those are some positive very positive results yeah you know, mm. using those ideas
4: yeah that's great you know so it sounds like uh, all around this was a successful intervention one it, it changed the child's behavior mm-hmm. you know and there was some change there and two there was a you know an additional benefit the families the parents felt you know less stress and less anxiety, so that's a that's a good thing too. That social component, that social validity component, mm-hmm. sure, very sure. cool. Right on. So um, this is really an interesting topic, you know, tonight um, that we talked about, and uh, I think you know one that, like we said at the beginning of this, this is one that a lot of our families and parents encounter. Um, you know, and I, I think too, like you know, one thing that we, it, it kind of goes without being said, but we should say it anyways because uh, sometimes it's worth doing so is that if this meal times if your son or daughter's food their diet is not a problem for you and your family and it's not a problem for the child in terms of their nutrition and their health and their weight then it's probably not a problem you know um so um Even if they, you know, four, five, six foods, if they're getting the adequate nutrition they need and it fits within your family practices and it fits within that individual in their school, the child in their school and that it's probably not a problem. So this really, you know, unless this is a problem for you, you know, unless this is something that's resulting in some some deficit in nutritional value for the individual, the child. Or um, it's limiting, you know, your um, functioning as a family. You can't go to, only you can only go to one fast food restaurant, which we've seen before. You know, if you want to go out as a family for dinner mm-hmm. and an individuals, you know, only will eat one particular food, you know, that can be kind of restricting as family practices. If it's not those situations, then maybe this is not a problem for you and you don't need to do it. But if it is, you know, then it can spark a conversation with you know, a behavior analyst or with an occupational therapist, you know, to kind of say, you know, is this something worth exploring? You know, um, I know we've got some, is some level of food pickiness or, um, food refusal or something like that, or maybe something more severe like FICA or what have you. Um, and it could definitely suggest, you know, um, do you think professional? Is there some area for, um uh intervention or change or is there something we could do? I don't know, just um, you know, some just throwing out some ideas there. I think some of the other issues too for
5: parents looking into this more deeply is between just simple searching, feeding versus mm-hmm. eating disorders. Good point. Because I know when we were looking it up, we had a hard time differentiating between the two. So yes. when we specified each one, we were able to come up with at least from what our impression was, eating disorders is more specifically dealing with your bulimia, your anorexia, whereas feeding is dealing more within the realm of something potentially they would be dealing with,
4: something mm-hmm. that they can look up to help them a little bit more. Yeah, and that's that's pretty key too because when we were just using key terms and we were popping things into Google or even into the scientific um, um, search engines, Eric, PsychLit, and that sort of stuff, Um, If you chose um, eating disorder, you got results on bulimia Mm -hmm. or anorexia. If you chose, and even Google, if you chose feeding disorders, you might be more likely to get this stuff on pickiness and refusal and that sort of stuff. So that's kind of an important, you know, um, takeaway is if you're going to go do some more research on this, use the correct terms or it might set you down the wrong path and frustrate you.
5: I think it also goes to show, too, that there's needs to be more information mm-hmm. more experiments done yeah. to increase this because yeah. if we're just doing a general search and we're f- more familiar with it I can only imagine the frustration that parents are going through as yeah. well looking yeah. at it from the perspective of I have a newborn or I have a two three-year-old who has these potential issues I don't know where to go mm-hmm. or am I gonna search so more of that would help
4: especially yeah. with our kids on the spectrum yeah right yeah good point
2: well, we definitely explored some, some really, important, uh, really important topic here. We covered some of the factors associated with feeding problems. Uh, we, we covered some of the interventions that are being used out there and, and, and how this affects families and uh, what some families can do to, to research and, and to bring this up to, to their providers. So, um, yeah, I think we, we covered some good ground here. Yes, we have. Yeah, it was great. And, and,
4: you know, listener, feel free to reach out to us to ask questions, suggest topics, and seek information. We thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. For more
0: insight from the Leafwing Center, please visit the Leafwing Center website and blog page at leafwingcenter.org. Email us at info at or visit us at your favorite social media outlet. Feel free to submit questions or comments about this or future podcasts, and we will put links to information discussed in today's show on the website. We look forward to next time. Thank you.